Tonight on Farage, life is getting tougher for the unvaccinated. And I say that the day that the French Parliament has put through what I consider some pretty draconian legislation. Are we now being unfair to the unvaccinated? The Colston statue toppled into the docks in Bristol and all four of the people who admitted doing it found innocent of causing criminal damage. We'll discuss the implications of that with a Member of Parliament who feels much the same way that I do. And joining me on Talking Pints, cancer survivor, grand national winner and charity fundraiser, Bob Champion. But first, the news. Good evening. I sat here a few weeks ago and said that I feared society was dividing into the jabbed and the jab nots. And my goodness me, it's now moving at a very rapid pace. It is becoming increasingly difficult in the Western world to lead a normal life if you have chosen not to get vaccinated. The big state is using all of its power to frankly make your life pretty much impossible. And I say that on the day that the French Assemblée Nationale has passed some new legislation which is coming into law within the next few weeks, which is going to make life for the over 50s who've not been vaccinated pretty much unlivable. We'll get the facts and the lowdown on that in a moment. But why? Why are we going in this direction? Because it seems to me, whether we jab people once or twice, give them a booster or embark upon a fourth booster, as the Israelis are doing, you can still catch COVID. And many, many people are. You can still pass it on. If the argument about getting vaccinated is it's to protect you from getting ill, well, surely that's your decision as an individual. You know, people choose to drink alcohol. People choose to smoke. People's lifestyle can lead them several stone overweight. All of these things are bad for them. All of these things do put pressure on the National Health Service. But ultimately, these things are the choice of the individual. And government tries, through taxes, through education, to try and change that behaviour. But never before have we seen people being forced by the state in this way. I'm very, very worried about it. Uh, we have 10% of this country who've had neither vaccine. We have 40% of the country who so far have been very reluctant to get the booster. Those percentages are much bigger in other European countries, far bigger in the United States of America. Is this drive to ensure that people get vaccinated the right one? Might it be better, actually, to work harder on developing the drugs, the antiviral drugs, to give people who get ill? Are the unvaccinated now being unfairly discriminated against? And I've got a new email for you into which you can send your thoughts and any news stories you want me to see. It is farage at gbnews.uk. That's farage at gbnews.uk. So please give me your thoughts, whether you agree with me that the unvaccinated are being discriminated against unfairly. And you can tweet hashtag Farage on GB News. That's hashtag Farage on GB News. Well, let's find out what happened overnight in Paris, a vote in the early hours of this morning in the Assemblée Nationale. And I'm joined by Anne-Elizabeth Moutet, Paris-based journalist and Daily Telegraph columnist. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Good evening, Nigel. So I see the legislation uh, that was passed by the Assemblée, and it's going to get rubber-stamped, I think, by the French Senate. 
Uh, please just share uh, with our listeners and our viewers uh, the extent of what's been agreed. What happens is that we had a health pass, and the health pass provided for you to have uh, to be vaccinated or to have had COVID, uh, and you already needed that health pass to go to the restaurant, to take a long distance train, uh, to go into uh, a number of places, but not offices. You could go to um, the canteen in your company, but not uh, in 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 a cafe. And and this there's a, a, a panoply of measures, and and you've got the law on the pass. The pass now means that you've got to be vaccinated you unless you really have a special condition medical condition that means you uh, the vaccine would harm you um you need to have a vaccine and the rest doesn't count and you can't you know say i've just been tested and my test was negative that's no longer good so essentially the idea and president macron said that in a sort of rather shocking way uh the day before yesterday he said uh, i want to uh pee off uh, the um, uh, the non-vaccinated, and I really uh, I feel like it. And it was a very strange way of saying things. On the other hand, he is also running for re-election. The re-election, uh, he's got three more months to make his case, basically. The election is on 7th, the first round is on 7th of April. And uh, he's looking at this and saying, um, most people in France are happily vaccinated um, and uh, they will support me and they will, anybody who takes a position against that is sort of cast into the outer darkness of a responsibility. So you've got calculations as well as a legislation that slowly has become more and more authoritarian, I would say, since 2015, when we had the great terrorist attacks and we started having emergency situations in France. And for the over 50s, life from the middle of February is, is frankly, I mean, you can't go to work, can you, after the middle of February as an over 50 year old if you've not been vaccinated? If you're over 50, yes, it's much harsher. Uh, and that essentially means you just you, you can stay at home and you can do some essential things, but you're considering as sort of typhoid Mary, so to speak. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. Even though the majority of the French population, about 80%, I think, have had the first vaccine, even though people have chosen to have the vaccine, is there really support in France for this draconian treatment of what is quite a large minority. I mean, where's, where's the opposition voice to this? It's interesting because the, the, the government have been very careful to fudge the issue and to sort of lump the, uh, uh, the people who worry about civil liberties with the anti-vaxxers. Uh, and, and that's a different, diff difficult place to be. You have for, for months now, we've had people who've advised Emmanuel Macron on his uh, successful campaign uh, five years ago. You've got people who are partisans, lawyers, uh, left-wing lawyers who say, this is really, uh, this is a problem of civil liberties. We are giving uh, 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 keys to people's freedoms uh, to a bureaucracy that can change it by decree about any time. Uh, and, and this is, this, we're, we're, we, have, we are vaccinated, we believe in it, but at the same time, you're cre creating a legal precedent which is a real problem in the country. I find it extraordinary. And a quick thought, if I can, please. Um, there are lots of candidates running, of course, for the first round of the French presidential election, as they always are. Is, is Macron still the strong favourite to win? He still is the favourite to win. There was a poll uh, yesterday which said that he had 
23, 24% voting intentions in the first round. And uh, the three candidates on the right, Valérie Pécresse, the centre-right candidate of the Parti Républicain, was 16, but so were Marine Le Pen uh, of the National Rally and the new Maverick candidate on the right, Éric Zemmour. So it's a very open race because what happens when you have who gets in the second round sort of just designates um, whether Macron wins or not. And his he hopes for Marine Le Pen. He desperately hopes for Marine Le Pen because he wins easily against her. Um, the figures give Eric Zemmour the possibility of winning, but he's not such a known quantity, so things can change. And Valérie Pécresse has been shown in two polls that she could win in the runoff if she was the one two weeks later uh, against uh, Emmanuel Macron. Well, we'll all be watching, and please, Elizabeth Moutet, come and join us again to update us on that French presidential campaign. Thank you for joining us. Well, let's get a medical opinion. You know, I do think we are beginning to unfairly discriminate against those that have chosen not to have the vaccine. And joining me is Professor Azim Majid, head of the Department of Primary Care and Public Health at Imperial College, and, of course, a practising GP in London. Good evening and thank you. Uh, good evening, Nigel. You know, I do understand that governments believe very strongly, and I don't doubt their sincerity, that having the vaccine and having the booster means that if you get COVID, you become less ill. I mean, they genuinely believe that. But why are we discriminating against the unvaccinated increasingly in the way that we are when, whether you're vaccinated or not, you can still catch COVID and you can still transmit COVID? Uh, so I'm a very strong supporter of vaccination, Nigel, but like you, I don't think it should be compulsory for people or mandatory in any way. So I'd prefer people to make their own choices about this, like other lifestyle issues like uh, smoking, exercise, diet, and so on. I think uh, what we're seeing across Europe is a very rapid increase in COVID cases. So, for example, in France, we've now got over 300,000 cases per day. In Italy, over 200,000 cases per day. And that's making the governments very anxious about the impact on the health service in particular. Uh, and so they're looking to try to do what they can to address that uh, problem. But, but, but I agree with you. You know, I think doctors, nurses, yeah. pharmacists should talk to people directly to address their concerns about vaccination rather than making it mandatory uh, through legal compulsion. Yes, well, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that. But getting back to the health service, getting back to this constant, you know, we must protect the NHS. We've been told that ever since the start of the pandemic. I thought the NHS was there to protect us, but perhaps I've got that wrong. But, I mean, name me a winter in the last few years when there wasn't a crisis, when there weren't hospitals that were overflowing. I mean, is it really worse in our hospitals today than it's been in previous winters? Um, I think it's been worse the last two winters because of COVID. And this winter, we've got the double problem, as well as patients who were ill with COVID. We've got a lot of staff who are off sick as well. So this, so this year, there's a twin pressure from that. We are lucky that flu rates are quite low this year, which has been helpful, because flu you know, has been quite low for the last couple of years. Uh, but you're right, you know, the NHS always struggles during winter. And we need to plan for that better in future years so that we've got more capacity to deal with sick people rather than always struggling every year, as we seem to do constantly. And do you worry, as I do, about the number of diabetes potential patients that have not been screened, the number of cancer patients that have not received diagnoses or started treatments? Is it actually possible, at the end of all of this, that we'll suffer a greater health toll from those that didn't get treated during the pandemic uh, than we actually suffer from COVID itself? Uh, we'll suffer a toll from both issues. So COVID will make a lot of people ill, and unfortunately many of those uh, will die. But also we'll see a problem with people not being screened, for example, and not getting other vaccines, not getting treated for diabetes, 
uh, having their cancer surgery delayed. And so we'll see a twin problem, uh, both from COVID, but also other problems as well, which is why we must get infection rates down at some point so we can address these other issues as well, which are very important for the health of the UK uh, population. Well, they certainly are, and this is not going to go away as a debate. I think the health service, the waiting lists, this is going to go on for probably years to come. Thank you for joining us Thanks, here on Nigel, Thank you very much. This evening. Thank you. Now, the news, I guess, that has dominated overnight is that of Novak Djokovic, a 21 winner, 21 times Grand Slam winner, on his way to Australia to defend the Australian Open. And something very odd seems to have happened. Now, he hasn't confirmed publicly that he's not been vaccinated, but he's made very critical comments about the vaccine in previous times. He apparently had applied to get an exemption to go into Victoria State, yet he arrives in Australia, is met with public condemnation from a country uh, that has been locked down far more than we have over the course of the last 21 months. And suddenly the Prime Minister makes a statement and he's now being held um, in a hotel uh, pending an appeal on Monday. What the hell is going on down under? Have the Australians lost the plot? Have they become a banana republic? What, I mean, what's happening? Well, joining me on the phone is Dr Amanda Owens, leading sports psychologist and former GB tennis player. And, and Amanda, I'm, he, he presumably didn't get on that plane without having some form of agreement. No, absolutely. And he, he got the uh, medical exemption from the Victorian uh, Victorian government. And um, obviously, well, well the, the state, sorry, I beg your pardon. So there's, there's obviously, you know, he got on the plane thinking that um, and believing that he was going to compete in the Australian Open and defend um, defend his title. Um, and obviously, it's, it, it's hugely important for Djokovic. Um, and he's, he, he's wanting to surpass Nadal and Federer's uh, Grand Slams. And uh, it's, I mean, it's, um, it's a very unusual situation. However, one that he, you know, he's being detained and held in a hotel room and it's not the greatest uh, situation at all for him, psychologically or for his well-being, really. No, and I, I don't see much um, support. Um, I don't see much encouragement from other leading tennis players regarding his plight. <laughs> I, I think Djokovic knew, as, a, as the world number one, um, you know, let's not forget this, um, he knows the rules, um, and indeed the, the rules were made very explicit to him uh, regarding the requirement for um, uh, necessary and sufficient uh, medical um, evidence for the, for the exemption. Um, he also knows, as, as the world number one, but also competing tennis player, you know, the, the rules around um, competing in the Australian Open. This was made clear to him uh, months ago. So it's, I, I personally think, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult situation, um, especially, you know, with, with your previous discussion regarding, you know, should we have uh, vaccinations as mandatory? Well, I mean, it's, it's a human right to decide whether one yes. has one or not. But, I mean, coming back to, you know, that's not my, I, I'm a you know, sports psychologist. So, I mean, it's, it's the impact it's going to have on him. And indeed, I mean, I believe he's allowed to use his phone. But, I mean, he's being 
he's being held and um you know unless this hearing goes his way which it seems to be very unlikely um then he will be deported on monday and no there isn't i mean it's it's causing a very diverse um and and um a lot of furore around the world really regarding i think the division here about whether one gets vaccinated or not and certainly yeah. you know within oh, tennis well. i think it's very important it's it's extraordinary amanda owens thank you for joining us giving us your thoughts. I don't think it's tennis that's in disrepute. It's Australia that's in disrepute. Funny, isn't it? Through the pandemic, states' rights have become an issue. Australia seems to me to have gone back quite a few years. I said, are we discriminating unfairly against the unvaccinated? Well, I guess Djokovic, in a sense, is a case in point. Coming up in a moment, I'm going to talk to Tom Hunt MP about the dangerous precedent that I believe has been set with the Colston for verdict. Well, your reaction to my question, are we unfairly discriminating now against the unvaccinated? One viewer says, of course it isn't. Those who haven't had the COVID vaccination are more likely to be more careful about their lives and choices. The vaccinated can still get COVID and pass it on. This point was made the other day, that if you've had the vaccine and the booster, uh, you might, in terms of your social interaction with other people, be less cautious. Is it right? I don't know. Daniel says, no, discrimination about health choices is a rocky road to go down. I'm with you. Jim says, it's not discrimination if you've chosen to be that. Lottie says, no, it's not. The decision to be vaccinated or not is a personal one based on the information to hand. I agree. Lucy says it's a question that shouldn't even need to be asked. Well, I'm sorry, but we're having to ask it. Now, I was pretty horrified by the judgment in Bristol yesterday. It seemed to me that it wasn't uh, the four posh kids who were actually on trial. Really, it was actually Colston himself who was on trial. I was astonished at the verdict, and this did lead to some debate in the House of Commons this morning. And here is the contribution from the Member of Parliament for Ipswich, Tom Hunt. Tom Hunt. Mr Speaker, my question has actually been asked. I was actually going to duck out, but I thought I'd just, you know, ask it anyway. So, again, I also, <laughs> as, as somebody who has concerns about this country's heritage, I also was disturbed by this judgment. I think the key point here is that it's fair enough to feel strongly about that particular statute, but there are legal and democratic processes one, one can engage with to make the case that that statute should be taken down. So this really, from what I can see, was lawlessness. And I, I do think it could set a dangerous precedent. So will my right to friend assure me that the government will consider if any changes can be made to protect our heritage, they are made, because I think you would have seen in the media today, there is great concern, and I don't think it's all misplaced. Thank you very much. Well, joining me live in person is the Member of Parliament for Ipswich, Tom Hunt. Tom, good evening. Welcome, good evening. Good evening. GB News. You clearly feel very strongly about this judgment, mm. as I did. I, the word I used last night here was precedent. I felt it set a precedent. Why not tear down any statue you like, you know, whether it's Churchill or Mahatma Gandhi or whatever it may be? Mm. And yet... Jacob Rees-Mogg, and you were addressing your comments to the Leader of the House this morning. Jacob Rees-Mogg said, I don't think the result in Bristol does this because the decision does not set a precedent. It was a case decided by a jury on the facts before them. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I think this Jacob is a patriot, uh, and I think on most issues uh, we agree. But I he's think, wrong on this, isn't he? I think he? on this one, I think that perhaps I need to have a conversation with him about 
Just say it. He's wrong. Um, look, I mean, I, I think ultimately um, my concern here is in terms of precedent. Yeah. Can we guarantee, for example, that the same thing won't happen to the Churchill statue? Because ultimately, you know, if I was a radical left activist in yep. London now, I'd be encouraged by that verdict. And I think, well, maybe actually we can go and remove the Churchill statue. And let's, let's not bother engaging in the democratic processes because we think it's wrong. So we want to topple it. We want to take it yeah, down. Yeah, we're offended. Um, and, and, and actually, you know, you know, London is a quite a left-wing city in the same way that Bristol's a left-wing city. So can we guarantee that the jury put together, composed of people from London, won't be that different from the one in Bristol? Well, the same thing might happen. There's another point here, isn't there, Tom? I mean, I, you know, yes, Bristol is a left-wing city. It doesn't mean everyone in Bristol is left-wing. But I do wonder, mm. you know, if I was living in a street in Bristol, you know, quite densely packed street in Bristol. Mm. And I was on that jury. Mm. And that jury had said, yes, they did commit criminal damage. Mm. I wonder whether, uh, because, because of the sheer nastiness of some of the Marxists left, mm. um, I wouldn't be concerned that perhaps my neighbours would think that somehow I was pro mm. Thomas Coulston. I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that was a factor in this, but... There's a bit of a debate being sparked today about jury trials, and that worries me. Mm. I've always thought jury trials mm. were the right place for us to be. Is there an argument, perhaps, in a, in a, in a contentious local case like this, mm. that a jury gets drawn from outside the area? Well, I, I, I think there's a question about whether a jury should be deciding at all on an issue like this. I think it's a pretty cut and dry issue. I think it's pretty clear that they were guilty of committing criminal... So it's a magistrate's court? Um, potentially. Potentially. And, you know, I mean, do, I would like, to, at the very least, to see these individuals slapped with a sort of it's very significant fine. But, you know, for me, the, the, the role of a jury is to decide guilty, not guilty. You know, the role of a, a jury is not to start getting dragged into political debates and say, you know, did they or did they not commit criminal damage? Yes or no? I don't want, to, I don't want them to be dragged into a debate about whether it was right or wrong for them to have done that and whether the political motives behind their reasoning for committing criminal damage were right or wrong. And that seems to have been the case here. So I don't want juries to get dragged into politics, and, it's, and, and, and that is what's happened. You know, and I, so I, I, you know, I've been accused, I've been attacked by people very much so on you know, social media today saying that I want to get rid of all juries, which is never, something I've never said. Um, but I, you know, what happened, what has happened here, is people have committed criminal damage and they haven't been punished. So, so if you defend that, you're defending lawlessness. But they were found innocent. Well, were they found innocent of, you know... Well, the charge was criminal damage. Yeah. And the verdict, well, was, the, the verdict was not guilt. Well, that's, that's extraordinary. Because it, a, it is totally there's a, there's a video of them committing criminal damage. What next? Well, I think that, um, you know, this, this flared up yesterday. You know, so I'm, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm not an expert in this area. Yeah. But I think it's about trying to find a way that addresses what happened with this verdict to ensure it doesn't happen again. And it safeguards our heritage. Uh, and it's important that we do that, um, whilst at the same time, you know, protecting jury trial. You know, I, mean, I don't think anyone's looking to totally upend that, but I, I, I don't think it's beyond the wit of man to find a way through this. And whether we can look at the police bill and do something with that in terms of amending it to make sure this doesn't happen again. I mean, I'll be having those conversations with government ministers. How many MPs feel as strongly as you about this? Quite a few. To be, I mean, quite a few, quite a few Conservative MPs are on record. Uh, and actually, not all of them are you, the people you, you might expect to be vocal on this. There's been lots of them across the different sections of the Conservative Party who've been active on this. There was two... Uh, I wasn't the only Conservative MP to raise it in, in the chamber today. There was also... Um, there was going to be a third... There was two of us, and there was going to be a third, but he had to nip out. We were going to have three. Uh, and then because we had a Labour MP saying that this was... 
you know, uh, defending Verde. Oh, really? You know, uh, yeah, um, yes, uh, Aspana Megan, who's the, M, the MP for uh, Labour MP for Limehouse, was saying that this is a fantastic verdict. Uh, and, wow. you know, so you know, it's, that's, well, that's, that's today's Labour Party. So this could become a real political issue. It does have a slightly American feel to it, doesn't it? Well, I mean, I, I've, I, mean, I know recently um, the Labour Shadow uh, Culture Secretary said statues don't matter, it's an irrelevant divide. Mm. I don't actually think it is an irrelevant divide. I actually think um, our country's heritage, I think, is an important thing. You know, and I, and, I, and I think that we've got to look to defend it. The Colston statue was controversial. Many people felt strongly about getting rid of a statue, but yeah. there are processes in place for them to engage with. It's not for them to take it into their own hands uh, and, and, and do criminal damage. Yes, I mean, the you Labour know. Party in Bristol could stand up the next local election saying, yeah. vote for us to form the local yeah. government and we'll remove the statue, and that would be democratic. Yeah. Tom Hunt, thanks for joining us here on GB News. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, I have a feeling that debate is not going to go away. Now, my what the Farage moment. The Taliban is now recruiting suicide bombers to be part of their army ranks. No, they really are. As the terrorist group looks to recruit 100,000 new troops. Well, it hasn't taken long, has it, for them to show their true colours in Afghanistan. Because, and this is a remarkable thing, they were described at the time of the Taliban takeover as country boys with a code of honour. This was unbelievably said by Britain's former Chief of Defence Staff, Nick Carter. That's how he put it. And Boris Johnson was right about them when he said they'd changed, wasn't he? I mean, it's just unbelievable. Well, I guess he's often wrong about things. I guess the one good thing is the Taliban's remaining main rival in Afghanistan is the equally appalling ISIS. And after the US, and we scuttled off into the sunset, maybe they'll fight it out with each other. I don't know. The important point here about the Afghan army under the control of a Taliban government, the important point here is to offer my congratulations to Joe Biden. That really is a job well done. You've put these people back in charge. And, of course, I must also congratulate CNN, The New York Times, Twitter, Facebook and all of you. You got your man. This was the foreign policy that it led to, to the removal of troops. It's been a complete and utter disaster. And here's the most extraordinary thing about all of it. And it really is extraordinary. And it is that the Taliban are still on Twitter. You know, we've seen a, a UK political website this week that have been banned from Twitter for reasons that I frankly can't comprehend. We've got the 45th president of America banned from Twitter and banned from Facebook as well. And yet the Taliban can still actively tweet away. Who knows? Maybe they'll put a job advertisement up there. And another, what the Farage moment. And this is extraordinary, but it says a lot about woke cancel culture and why it is such a mess. A school in Chelmsford that cancelled J.K. Rowling and removed her name from one of its houses over her apparently controversial comments on trans people and replaced her with Olympian Dame Kelly Holmes. Well, they're now beginning to look a little bit silly as it's emerged that Dame Kelly has made just as tough, if not, in the eyes of some, worse remarks. Two years ago, the gold medalist said, why not have a trans category if need be, but even better, a trans Olympic Games to avoid a backlash and abuse from spectators? 
Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. The woke left have once again tied themselves completely in knots. So what are Boswell School in Chelmsford, Essex, going to do now? Well, maybe replace Dame Kelly. But then who with? Maybe freedom fighter Nelson Mandela. No, that won't work. He was convicted of terrorism. Perhaps the new house could be named after Mother Teresa. Surely there was nothing wrong with her. She was a saint. Oh, dear. No, it won't work. She was anti-abortion. So now, you see, we're in a situation where nobody is beyond being cancelled. If they've upset at any point in time a minuscule amount of the population, if anyone takes offence, people just seem to get banned. It is utterly, completely bonkers. Now, in a moment, I'll be joined by a man who won the Grand National heroically in 1981, having recovered, having got over um, cancer. And he'll be with me in a minute. Bob Champion on Talking Pipes. The GB News Tavern is open. It's time for Talking Pints. But before I introduce my guest, I want to show you a clip of the 1981 Grand National at Aintree. And Spartan Missile is still finishing strongly. It's Aldenichi, though, as they come to the elbow. They've got over a furlong to run. And it's Aldenichi in the lead, but being pressed now by Spartan Missile. It's Aldenichi from Spartan Missile, and here comes Johnson. 54-year-old Johnson putting in a storming finish. It's Aldenichi from Spartan Missile. Aldenichi is going to win it at the line. Aldenichi wins the national. Spartan Missile is second. Royal Mail is just third ahead of three. Well, here's the jockey. It's Bob Champion. That was you 40 years ago on Alderney winning the Grand National. What a moment. Absolutely fantastic. And um, it was a race I always wanted to win from very early age as a kid. I remember... Because you were kind of born into horses, weren't you? Yes, I was, yeah. You know, hunting family up the north. And um, I can remember the careers officer coming around to my school. And I wasn't the most educated person in the world. And um, the careers officer came and offered me about three jobs. Dorman Long Steelworks. I didn't really want to work in the steelworks. Skinny Grove Mines, going down under the sea about 10 miles. and used to cave in about every three weeks type of thing, killing a few people. Or something else, you know, and... Um, I can always remember um, my dad took me down the mines just to, so I wouldn't go down there and yeah. um, just went down one stage and I thought, no, that's definitely not for me. And um, Mr. McKenzie, my form master, said to me, always follow your dreams. And I wanted to be a jockey. And believe it or not, the day I won the national, as I was coming back into the on Saturday enclosure, there was Mr. McKenzie. Hadn't seen him for years with his thumb up. Fantastic. And I'll always remember that. I mean, I've been to Aintree. I've watched the National. I've walked the course. Uh, they've made the course fairer, easier. You can choose whatever words you want. But when you were riding it then, you know, beaches, the chair, pretty intimidating some of those fences, weren't they? Oh, oh. oh. Or was it to you just all part of the job? Oh, they were bigger fences, let's be honest. They were. They took yeah. a lot of jumping. 
I can remember the very first time I ever had a ride at the National Horse Call Country Wedding. She was small and not very big and got qualified for winning the worst race in the history to get qualified. And I went there and I walked around. I thought, oh, my God, nothing can get round there. Well, I got brought down at the first bench <laughs> by the favourite. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't get much farther. I guess it must be exhilarating riding in a national. Is it a little bit scary? Um, no, not really. You know, you're doing a job you love. And, you know, I'd been brought up riding across country. And, um, you know, of course, you get the, ad- the adrenaline is the most important yeah. thing. And as soon as you walk out on t- into the paddock, see the owners, jump on the horse, you're doing your job then and you're concentrating and um, you're not nervous anymore. You canter down to the start, go and look at the first fence and, um, you know, look at the starter and away you go. Away you go. No, it is, as I've been to several nationals, it is um, an amazing atmosphere. It's a fabulous I love it. I know there are some that criticise it, but I love it personally. So, Bob, you achieve your ambition, you become a, a jump jockey and then it all goes horribly wrong, doesn't it, for you? And you, 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 you get cancer... How, how, for how long did you know you had a problem? Um, I had these, this ache. It was in one of my testicles. Yeah. And um, this ache, it was a numb sort of ache. And, um, you know, I still didn't do anything about it. You know, I'm a man with stupid, really, in a lot of ways. But also as a jump jockey... Yeah. You're used to getting knocks. Oh, and... good God, yeah. I had falls. I got kicked there one day. And um, it had nothing to do with me testicular cancer, looking back on it. And, um, you know, basically still didn't do anything. Went to America because I used to ride every summer in the States because there was no jumping in England those days and um, had to earn a living. And um, I, you know, still had this terrible feeling and what a small world it was because I'd been over there um, for about a couple of weeks and I thought I didn't have any rides for a couple of weeks I'll go down to Cancun in Mexico get a bit of a holiday get some sunshine and um, every morning there I um, used to chat to this English girl wouldn't have anything to do with me in the evenings but uh, (laughs) and um, she was telling me she was a sister at the Royal Marsden Hospital never thought any more about it Um, went back to Delaware where I was riding and um, still had these pains and everything and managed to ride a winner and I started going out with a lady vet and um I managed to get her into bed that night. Right. Right. (laughs) And the first thing she said to me was, if I was you, I'd get on the first plane back to England and see a specialist. So went back, um, went to the Park Street Clinic. Um, Doctor there, Alan Thomas, sent me straight to the Marsden. Had two operations that week. Went to the Royal Marsden to start the chemotherapy. Who was the sister of the ward? The girl I met in Mexico. What a small world. She was in America learning about the chemotherapy at Washington. Um, So you'd left it too long, basically. Yeah. You know, basically, out of five points, I got to four. So if I'd left it another month, I wouldn't have been here. And the chemotherapy, because I... And I've told you this before, but I probably haven't told the audience before, but I had the same testicular cancer that you had. I had exactly yeah. the same a few years after you. Um, one of the first things I did on being diagnosed with it and operated on, one of the first things I did was to get a copy of your book. 
I wish I hadn't read it at the time. <laughs> I was afraid to live in danger. Well, I mean, when you went through chemotherapy, it was absolutely brutal, wasn't it? Oh, it was. You know, Blair mice have been blasting and platting them, pumped into you. You were sick 24 hours a day. Yeah. It was horrendous. I used to get... I was in there for seven days, have a day off, then it hit me again on the ninth day. Back to... It was horrendous. 15th day... Three days off, then basically the 21st day, start the treatment again. And that went on for six months. Yeah. And nearly died of septicemia a couple of times. They got me back to the hospital just in time, changed my blood and everything. But, you know, those days, it wasn't the cancer that was killing you. It was the treatment those days. If you got through it, thankfully, through research, and we've been big part of it, um, we are curing 95%. We are now, yeah. But so, but, so you come out of this, the cancer's been cured, but physically, there's not much left of you, is there? Oh, it was an absolute wreck. I went down to about eight stone seven. I'd never been eight stone seven from the day I'd been born. And, um, you know, came back and I thought maybe make a flat jockey, but I was so weak and um, couldn't do anything couldn't even ride a pony and tried riding out here in England. The weather was very cold, so that was even worse. So I thought I'd go back to America. I knew Burley Cox's horses would be in South Carolina that time of year. Weather would be nice. Mm. It would help me. And it did. It got me back two or three months quicker than I would have done it in England, I must admit. Had my first rides in the States. Um, had a winner. Well, my first ride back was a winner. Was it? Um, but looking back on it, like it should have won because I was on the best horse in the race. But <laughs> the thing that pleased me, hadn't lost my racing brain, and that meant more to me than anything. And then I moved up to Saratoga and rode a couple of winners up there, and um, then I came back to Josh Gifford. And um, Josh Gifford, he was training down at Finden in West Sussex, and he had a horse, didn't he? A horse called Alden Eaty. And you'd known this horse for some time. Oh, yes. I'd known him quite a long time. And um, he was a good horse. Third in the Gold Cup, second in the Scottish National. Horse that always had problems, always had leg problems. Um, that was the thing. He only ran about 20 times in his whole career. And, um, you know, I was stable lock jockey to Josh. And Josh always said my job was there when I came back. I don't think he ever believed I would come back, but he gave me the confidence and um, came back. My first ride back for him was a winner, so, and it was Josh's 500 training success, so that meant an awful that was quite nice. lot to me as well. So you're back in the game, but Alden Eaty is having problems, yeah? Yeah, Alden Eaty, um, when I was um, out having chemotherapy, broke down, Richard Rowe rode him that day at Sandown, and the vets wanted to put him down. And they were serious about putting him down. And, but the owners knew I always said he'd win a Grand National one day. And um, so they said, we'll have him at home and um, we'll do what we can. That horse was in plaster for six months, tied up for six months, couldn't lie down. All he could do was eat. And that was it for six months. And then... Came out of the stable and, you know, you just think you'd been tied up and you can't move anywhere for six months. Absolutely amazing. His character, his temperament must have been yeah. absolutely fantastic. They did all the home 
road work at home, the Embrikoses who owned him. And then he went back to Josh Gifford's January the 1st, 1981. And um, he was a horse that always used to pull a lot. And Josh decided he'd ride him out himself. And Josh had <coughs> hands like silk, I promise you. He could hold anything. They'd relax, but he had been champion jockey mm. a few times. He was a brilliant rider. And um, so he rode him out every day. Six weeks later, he went to Ascot in the Whitbread trial. And, um, you know, that was going to be the pre-race yeah. um, for him if he got to the national. And I can remember he was the outsider of all of them. And, um, you know, that I can always remember that morning. He was... Um, 66 to 1 for the Grand National and um, 16 to 1 for the Whitbread trial that day at Ascot. As you know, jockeys aren't allowed to bet, but mothers are. <laughs> <laughs> she had a few quid on him, <laughs> both at 16 and 66 to 1. But this was the whole romance of the day, wasn't it? I remember before the race, yeah. you know, Bob Champions nearly died. He's back on a horse they were going to put down. It was a fairy tale win, wasn't it, really? And... and and so much so, Bob, that there was a book, as I say, the book that I read. There was a film. John Hurt played you in the film. Did he play you fairly? I think he did a brilliant job, but John was an absolute fantastic actor. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I went the filming quite a bit, not every day, mostly press days and everything. Yeah. And I was talking to John one day and he said, I said, John, you're making me out to be too nice. He said, if I made you out how you really are, nobody would watch the film. <laughs> so that put me in my place very quickly. No, it was great. And you've done a lot, Bob. You've set up the Bob Champion Cancer Trust. You've raised a lot of money. Uh, about 16 million. About 16 million. You're still out raising money. Yes, and, we are. And, and that's great. Do you think the treatment of men's cancer has got better? I think, I think it's getting a little bit better. I'm not saying it's going as fast as it should do. And, you know, what we've been through the last two years, it really worries me, cancer sufferers. There's going to be so many more um, in year, two years because women haven't had their mammograms and all the other tests and everything um, because of COVID and everything. Um, you try seeing a doctor. It's been impossible. And I remember back in the summer, I had to have an operation and I was in absolute agony, my back, and kept ringing the doctor, explaining what it is, didn't want to know, ring them again. I think they got sick of me ringing them. They still never saw me. They said, go to a hospital yeah. and have a checkup. So went to a checkup and um, nothing seemed to happen there. Then I said, have you had the results? Oh, we know nothing about it. So went back, had more scans and everything. The next thing, I'm in Addenbrooke's, um, well, six weeks later, um, for an operation. And um, they removed half of my kidney. It was a five-hour operation. Um, I ended up in intensive care for a week. Not a very pleasant thing no. to be in. But you were perhaps, because you were so persistent, you actually got treated. Oh, yeah. If I hadn't been... Yeah. No, there are real problems. Treatment. Bob, there are real problems coming down the track. There really are. Yeah. And finally, a message, a message to men out there who, some of them, are probably as silly as you were when you were young and they have aches and pains and problems and do nothing about it. What do we say to young men in particular? Most important these? thing, if you think there's something wrong, 
go and see a doctor. But the most important thing is check your bodies. You know, if there's any changes, go and do something about it because it could save your life. Well, that was Bob Champion and that quite inspiring words. His life was saved and he won the Grand National. So any problems, guys, out there, go and get it looked at. Thanks. Right, we're coming towards the end of the show and I've got the barrage, the farage moment. One viewer asks me, what do you think the green levy will start... When will it start to prove a good investment for the UK taxpayer? Um, I'm not sure it ever will. Uh, I think money that gets taken by government in green levies, uh, given out to all sorts of schemes, given away to foreign companies in most cases, is a bad deal for the UK. I'm wholly unconvinced by all of it. Helen asks, any plans to get Farage at large back on the road this year? Yes. In fact, we're very ambitious for Farage at large. We're going to be travelling the length and breadth of the United Kingdom We'll be starting in just about three or four weeks' time. Uh, and we'll be doing it at least twice a month, maybe three times a month. Claire asks, how can we get back to core Conservative values within the Tory party? Well, this is a great mystery. That's completely and utterly beyond me. The Conservative Party is in the hands of the metropolitan, trendy, green elites. And until there is a complete change of leadership, it ain't going to happen. But I will say this. You saw young Tom Hunt. Coming earlier on today, the MP for Ipswich. He's 33 years old. He's part of that new wave of Conservatives who got elected to the House of Commons in 2019. And I tell you what, they are actually a pretty determined bunch. So there is at least some hope for the future. David asks, how is dry January going? That's a ginger beer. I have to say, it's been a very long time uh, since I've had any break at all from alcohol. Uh, it's day six I'm absolutely having no problems whatsoever, I promise you. No, actually, it's going all right. Coming up next, it's Mark Stein. First, though, let's see what the weather is going to throw at us tonight and tomorrow. 